Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. And welcome back to the Welsh History Podcast, episode 202, In the Shadows, the World Changed. We have reached a point in time in the history of this podcast where we are branching away from directly going from point A to point B, something we've been doing slowly but surely over time, but certainly will probably happen a little bit more often, where we'll talk a little bit about the early part of the century and then the later part of the century will be mixed into the same topic just simply because it's too difficult to talk about one thing that doesn't interrelate to another so it's something to be aware of as we go forward with the podcast and something i will be mindful of that when we talk about say mining we're not just going to talk about the first decade of mining we're going to talk about mining on an overall scale which is what we started with this last episode or when we talk about labor, when we talk about nationalization and nation building, all of that kind of thing will be apportioned out in a way that will discuss things in a method that makes sense, that it'll be um, collectively held rather than, you know, a bit of here, a bit of there. So we'll see how it goes. I may switch things up as we go. I did at one time think that we would do more of the um, individual subject matter on its own, but I've still kind of kept moving forward through the centuries as well. So it'll probably be a mix of both. But just so we're aware and kind of everybody's up to date, that's kind of how we're mixing it today. So let's talk about the 1800s, because speaking of talking about a grand topic, this is definitely one that will have major impacts on what is now the modern world. The 1800s, or the 19th century, depending on your reference point, is a place that enters it very much like it had in the 16th and 17th and 18th centuries. There were, uh, for the most part, militaries made up of hired guns, mercenary groups, selective nomination of people there's still in some places feudalism which is going on and the near slave states of various kingdoms republics and other nations are continuing as well as contact has expanded and things have grown colonies around the world are beginning to be developed by the european powers and having a much stronger and much more aggressive military, they are able to enforce a lot of things. But as much as it's grown in the 18th century, by the 19th century, it will explode. And we're going to discuss all this, but let's start off, I guess, first of all, 
by talking about the changing face of war. Wars up until this point are generally not massive numbers in the way we think of them these days. They're mostly fought by a few thousand people on each side. Major battles are happening, but they're, they're very small by comparison to what will come, in part because populations are smaller, but also because most of the military is trained fighters. The learning and owning of weapons was an expensive process, and you couldn't manufacture them in such a way that to make them cheap enough that every Tom, Dick, and Harry, to use a quote, uh, could own them and could use them. That was slowly starting to change in an era where industrialization is starting to pick up. Keep in mind that most of the poorer classes that were impressed into fighting were mostly fighting with no armor and with sticks. Which, to be fair, were very effective at the time. As time has gone on, the need for a gun has become much more important. Accuracy is now much better. It is not as good as it will get, obviously, but it's getting there. And the ability of people to suffer massive casualties is starting to grow. One of the things that's going to come about out of the Napoleonic Wars is the mass conscription of people, massive volunteer armies and not volunteer armies that will spread across Europe to fight these various conflicts. From Now keep in mind, we are talking strictly from a European perspective here. Everything's different if you go to, say, China or Southeast Asia or Africa, you're going to get different answers to all of these questions and different perspectives and different combinations of things like Japan is still in the midst of a version of feudalism. The Chinese are in a very different set of circumstances than, say, England and France and Prussia are at this time. So we're just going to focus on Europe, but understand that because it has global consequences on every other country in the world in a very short order. So as I said, the changing face of war becomes about instead of having a small army with a massive population, you now have a large army within your population rather than necessarily hiring a bunch of Swiss mercenaries to fight your wars. You're now hiring, you know, your local people, handing them weapons and sending them out, which is good and bad. Um, and it does offer its own level of understanding of how the wars will be fought. Generals will fight in a very different manner than they've been fighting. Kings will no longer take part in warfare. Leaders of states will now step away from being participants to only being the political figures behind the decisions. Something that was happening anyway, but it really picks up here. You don't have... Napoleon's kind of the last of the great general kings. And after this point, for the most part, they will not lead their armies, at least not in a way that they would have previously. And certainly they wouldn't be on the front lines anymore because of the way machine guns and, and guns in general change the dynamic of warfare. We'll see this happen within 50 years as you get to the wars in Crimea when you then get to the civil wars in the United States, and then you get to, of course, World War I, 
industrialization will have totally converted warfare into something unrecognizable from the century earlier where muskets were used to fight and now all of a sudden you have rifled guns and you have machine guns and you have artillery instead of cannon all of these things will change the face of warfare in such a way that like i said it'll be relatively unrecognizable and of course this means that industrialization will be the key to all of this the building of items that becomes mass produced comes out of these wars and out of the changing dynamic of and needs of the population the ability to offer instead of a single shopkeeper making eight kettles a day and selling them and not having a limited stock to somebody who can produce thousands of kettles in the same time period is going to change the costs of things it's going to change the dynamic of availability and the nations that can do this will have more of the financial control because more people will want what they have this is something we've seen in the past with the romans as the romans developed and changed the face of society more and more of their neighbors wanted a piece of rome of course sometimes that meant they became a part of rome and sometimes they it meant they invaded rome this will be sort of a similar circumstance here nation states will suddenly now desire what places like the united kingdom have which is the ability to offer these kind of things so all of this is starting to change and it's built on the back of steam power which is built on the back of course of coal which now is the primary driver of the industrial revolution along with the population that's being used to work the machines and to struggle with the machines and in some cases die in the machines or be very maimed in the machines and other parts of the industrial revolution will come to reflect all of this and this will create on its own a great change in how labor is perceived both from the perspective of the employee as well as the employer and we will see the rise of groups that change from the previous guilds that were existing into what we now know as unions and these labor movements will have a great deal of influence on the development of many things across the century including the entire idea of socialism of communism of capitalism all will change in a short order and become the key dynamics of the social order from here on out something that i'm sure when 1800 rolled around nobody was expecting or or even contemplating in most of the western world at the time as well another thing that we will see over the next hundred years is the development of colonies on a scale not seen previously the unseemly scramble for africa as it's called where the European powers basically race to try and capture more and more of Africa to try and develop it and to make it into theirs. And by so doing, of course, dominating the local populations, which don't always appreciate being dominated. In fact, I would say 99.9% .9 of the time don't appreciate being dominated by those nations and the wars, conflicts, protests, arguments that will come out of that will dominate 
discussions at times because, of course, it will reflect back on Wales because, of course, not only is Wales a participant in this colonization, we also see the point where people who were colonized start to move into the UK and specifically into Wales and start to move into various parts of Wales and integrate their culture into the Welsh identity, something that is important, especially as we get into the 1900s and onward, where we're going to talk a lot about various cultures and their influence on society today that have come out of these developments, something that up until now was not happening on the same scale. As well, of course, in the midst of all of this, we have dynamics over poor laws, slavery, women's suffrage, all of these political things which are kicking off in this time period. This is where you see the protest movements grow out of, instead of being a simple violent protest or a rebellion or revolt, it becomes a sometimes peaceful, sometimes not protest. You see the development of people fighting for the political ideals that they have within what is the democratic rights that they have, which are slowly developing over time. Access to and an increased ability to vote, and an increased understanding of who has the right to vote will influence largely what becomes of Welsh nationalism and what becomes of women's suffrage and what becomes of those who are disadvantaged in the system. And make no mistake, this era will continue the fine tradition of a very large amount of disproportionately disadvantaged people who struggle and fight the system and have to deal with the consequences of the system, something we'll discuss in much more detail as we go through this podcast, because now, instead of it being, well, we don't really have the information from these people because either they can't read, they can't write, they don't understand or are unable to write their own history, or conversely, the history is being written largely by people who have no relationship to them. Now, we will get direct histories, direct ideas from these people about what's going on, and the discussions will now become much more public and much more known, and it will start to influence both the thought process of those in the upper and middle classes, but also it will change the lower classes into understanding what is going on. And make no mistake, class structure in this time in Wales is very important, and it will continue to be very important throughout the century. Some might even argue that it's still important today, but nonetheless, this is a consequence of what is coming out of this, where previously we have talked about the peasants and the aristocracy maybe mixed with a capitalist class, we now have distinct lines between various people, between the servants and the served, and how that starts to break the system down, and discussions and philosophies are growing about what to do about these things. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey, and we want to hear from you. 
The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Burn the Boats from Evergreen Podcasts. I interview political leaders and influencers, folks like award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and conservative columnist Bill Kristol about the choices they confront when failure is not an option. I won't agree with everyone I talk to, but I respect anyone who believes in something enough to risk everything for it. Because history belongs to those willing to burn the boats. Episodes are out every other week wherever you get your podcasts. So with that, and as we move into all of this, we need to talk in more detail about some of the larger things that are happening. So we'll take one step back and start off with 1789, as the French public rebelled against the monarch over a number of obvious inequalities and divisions which were created, these allowed a fertile field of revolution to develop. It created an earthquake in the rest of the European community as the second major revolt in less than 20 years. The first, of course, was in America, but was simply seen as a colonial issue which was to the advantage of Spain and France against England, at least at the time. This time, it was on the continent, and it was a major monarchy, a descendant of the old imperial throne of Charlemagne, who had collapsed, and with it, chaos reigned in the minds of the monarchs across Europe. Trickles of French aristocrats turned into floods into places like London as they fled the wrath of the new government and a vengeful public looking to make examples of these people. The feudal absolutionist leftovers in France were washed away in a flood of murder, execution, and exile, something that would happen again in Russia about 120 years later. In both cases, the surviving governments in Europe were driven to try and stop the revolt in its tracks, and in both cases, one could argue they were unsuccessful. By the spring of 1792, Prussia and others declared war on France as part of an attempt to regain the area of Alsace, a smaller area of France today that has continued to be bickered about and reclaimed by various sides through various wars. Of course, this was neither the first battle nor the last. This would eventually sweep the Austrians and the Italian allies into the war as the French military struggled to gain victories. Soon Spain and the Low Countries were brought into the conflict. The Low Countries, of course, today consisted of Luxembourg, Belgium, and the Netherlands, but at the time were considered the Spanish Netherlands. They would, of course, join forces with Spain in order to fight the French. And things would for the monarchies, go from bad to worse on January 21st, 1793, with the execution of Citizen Capet, better known as King Louis XVI. Shortly after, on February 1st, 1793, the Republic of France declared war on a number of countries, including Britain. 
This would, of course, drag Wales into the conflict that would last the next 20 years and rage on every continent across the world as France, Spain, and British colonies fought for and against their home countries. It also would drag the United States into a conflict against Britain, which was considered to be a bit of a sideshow, but was still important to both the developments of the British part of North America and the United States. We will cover this in some small extent in later episodes, specifically the Welsh parts of the Napoleonic Wars, as it would create consequences that would allow Britain to supercharge its place as master of the oceans and colonies beyond and across the world as it set the stage for its true empire. And make no mistake, Wales was, would have a part to play in both the good and bad of it all, as well the drive to create modern political change in Britain would begin as a result of the convulsions of this era. But now, in the 19th century beckons, I think it is time we crossed into the new century and the true crossroads. The end of the old world and the beginning of the new world that continues to build aftershocks that exist even now in our society across the world. Wales entered the 1800s in a transitional situation that few understood or believed. Agriculture and fishing, which had remained the heart of the economy for so long, basically since the end of the Roman Empire, and had been the king for the financial well-being of Wales. Remember, as we've talked about in previous episodes, sheep, specifically wool production, was a major income driver for a number of years for England, as it, in part of its domination of Wales, used that to create things like wool <laughs> and clothes to sell to others, including to themselves, which brought in a lot of money. That was starting to change. Of course, as we talked about previously, cotton was coming into the day-to-day -day society and was starting to change the way people wore clothing, what colors they wanted the clothing to be made of, and long-term hurt that agricultural economy. It was also a situation where the Industrial Revolution was having an effect because you could produce so much so quickly compared to what had been the case previously. However, because it was not as speedy as we sometimes think, it was slow enough that few even recognized what was happening until the end of the century, or at least late on in it. The domination of dairy, sheep, and wheat had remained the kings of agriculture, but they were no longer the kings of the economy. Cattle offered many products that provided day-to-day -day food supplies. Wheat, of course, offered the main crop for bread and other food sources, and a key staple of daily life. Wool, as I said, remained a source for homemade clothing, and as had been done for thousands of years, and would continue to be so for the foreseeable future. During the French Republic Wars and the Napoleonic Wars that followed, Britain and Wales would especially benefit from this isolation of France, profiting financially from the sales of the various items that they were getting, meanwhile closing off access to the industrialization that they were profiting from. 
keep in mind at this point, Britain is the only real empire or kingdom that is controlling industrialization. It is only slowly but surely starting to leak out at this stage. Many countries are still existing as they had done for hundreds of years prior to this. But what it is doing is it's starting to drive the population away from these staple jobs and economies. For one thing, as industrialization will grow, especially on the farm, it will start to pull people away because there will be less need for so many people working on these sites. Farmland, of course, is a very intensive working process, one that takes all year, either through the livestock that you have to accumulate and grow, continue to protect, and the seeds and wheat and barley and oats all have to be grown, monitored, continually protected, watched over, dealt with floods, famines, and everything else. So it was all very intensive because most of it was done by hand or by small implements. Well, now you have an industrialization that is starting to make that easier and easier. Steam engines and the development of different tools will continue to push this forward. Of course, this won't massively change until the end of the century, but it is something that's coming and it can be seen from here. After the Napoleonic Wars ended, Wales went through some very successful growing seasons, which saw a mini-boom in agriculture from 1815 to 1846, with only a couple of periods of lulls where the situation was less optimal. One reason for this was the lack of cheap imports for Britain to replace local produce, likely driven in part due to the post-recovery of Europe after the continent-wide war, created problems for various kingdoms, republics, and empires. As well, shipping costs from the colonies would make it so that it wasn't as cheap to import from, say, places like Canada or India or Australia for things that were not the luxury items that they would be searching for or trying to get their hands on. The only exception, of course, to this would be wood production, which would be coming hand over fist out of Canada to help with shipbuilding at the time. For cattle and sheep, things were not as rosy, unlike grain crop, because the prices slid due to a number of factors, including cheap importation of cotton, which we mentioned, which started to replace wool as the chief source of cloth. This was especially true for the wealthy and the middle classes, who could take advantage of the price discounts. This would be something that we would see more and more. And of course, because of the bubble in agriculture, it created this sense that things weren't as different as they would end up being. By mid-century, of course, this would start to flip because the other thing that's happening at the same time in Wales is the massive shift in labor to the southern parts around the valleys and Cardiff and Swansea, where coal production is beginning to kick off and the need for massive amounts of labor is becoming very strong. And because of that, we're seeing more and more people moving out of the middle part of Wales and the western parts of Wales down to the south. And because of this, communities which were relatively small previously, such as Cardiff, Merthyr, Swansea, suddenly start to explode in population as the demand for coal grows and the access to the ocean goes through these sites. 
So all of a sudden you have a major supplier of coal, a particular type of coal, which is high burning and highly productive and relatively safer than some of the other dirtier coals that were floating around. Keep in mind, home heating, if you have a dirtier coal supply, can make your life even more miserable than coal does already. All of this we will cover in the future and more as we continue to look at this, but this is kind of the economic factors that are driving a massive change in Wales between the war with Napoleon, the conflicts and privations of that for the rest of Europe, creating an economic circumstance in which Britain can take advantage of this, including snagging things like India, taking over Australia, New Zealand, then the beginnings of the scramble for Africa. We'll see more and more that this factor will continue to create a very viable situation for the population to continue to take advantage of it, at least some parts of the population to continue to take advantages of it, and for others to start to understand how they are being mistreated, misused, and abused, and how they start to understand the power in the we instead of the one. And with that all said and done, I'd thank, like to thank you all for listening. If you have any comments, questions, or concerns, you can reach me at welshhistorypodcast at gmail.com. You can also reach out to me on Twitter at welshhistorypod. I will actually be setting up a Threads uh, social media site as well for the Welsh History Podcast. So if you prefer that particular uh, social media, you can reach me out there. You can also join us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Welsh History Podcast. And if you would like to help contribute to the podcast, you can do so at patreon.com forward slash Welsh History. Thank you all for listening. Have yourselves a great day. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. Welsh History Podcast is a member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. To find more information on them, you can do so at evergreenpodcast.com. Thanks for listening. A news story gets shared by a friend on social media, or you catch a tweet that really makes your blood boil. But how do you separate fact from fiction? That's the premise behind Disinformation, a 10-part series from Evergreen Podcasts and Emergent Risk International coming this fall. Tune in to Disinformation wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, don't believe everything you read.